This is our second week. First three weeks are uh, going to be pretty controversial, and uh, we had you know a lot of really interesting feedback from last week. Uh, some people loving some of what we're talking about, others having challenges and struggles with it. But you know, one thing I know for sure, it led to some really good conversation in our community, and I think we'll continue to do so. So I just encourage that. Part of the reason we're going through this series is really kind of threefold. One is so that we can come up with what does it mean to have a Christian sexual ethic. Uh, what does it mean to have a series of ideas that we can all um, land on that say this is what we all believe about this topic in a society that uh, pretty much allows kind of whatever people to believe whatever um, you know we've got to figure out from a Christian perspective does God really have a voice in all of this and so that's one of the reasons that we're going through this series is trying to figure that out and some of you are going to expect you know when you hear ethics you think oh rules you know we're going to get a lot more guidance in rules but uh, if it, last week was any sign of what this series is going to be like, it's going to be a whole lot more challenging on how to think about this stuff than it is here are ten Christian sexual ethics that everyone needs to memorize and practice in their own life. Uh, and that's good. As a community of faith, we really believe strongly in having people who have very different beliefs and opinions being together under the same roof. Not because we're one that just says, whatever you want to believe, believe it, and that's fine, but we believe that we should all continually, in love, challenge each other's beliefs and affirm each other's beliefs. Um, and the trend of denominationalism that has really kind of defined American Protestant uh, culture is waning, and waning, I think, in some ways uh, is a good thing. And we're going to take advantage of that. And that's why our church is truly interdenominational. We have a lot of folks coming from a lot of different backgrounds, whether Christian or not Christian, Catholic or Protestant. Uh, and we want that, and we like that. And, uh, and that's going to be a really important value as we move forward. Um, and so that's, that's another big part of this, is we want to challenge our culture, to be able to, uh, of our, the culture of our church, to talk about issues like this that are really controversial. Uh, and that rile us up a little bit, and that get us feeling uncertain, and that get us feeling like, well, maybe someone's stepping on my toes, because we're not going to shy away from having those conversations. Because in those conversations, we have opportunity to really seek after God's heart, um, and to just seek after um, mutuality with each other, an ability to really understand where people are coming from, and understand their experiences, and understand what's going on in their heads, and, and try to kind of make sense of it all. And then we really value that. Because we think Jesus really valued that. And then third, and I think this is uh, definitely happening as I talk to a lot of you, uh, we want to engage in conversations with the larger culture. You know, some of the things that they're talking about, some of the points that they're making. We want to be able to talk about that intelligibly with people in our classes and at our work. Um, to be able to listen to what they believe. To be able to speak the gospel into their life and their experience in ways that are persuasive, but more than persuasive, in ways that really give them a chance to know who God is. Because that's really what we're about. Uh, is not espousing beliefs that sound good and sound right and that will, you know, pound somebody rationally into believing the right way, but rather speaking and communicating in a way that really allows people to approach God and understand Him and understand what He's about and understand His character. Um, and so that's really why we're doing this series, and so I hope that you would keep that in the back of your mind if you start to think, well, what the heck are we doing here? Uh, why are we opening Pandora's box? You know, what, what's happening? Um, uh, yeah, so there you go. Uh, we have, we're going to post some activities, worship activities, uh, in an anonymous forum online on the Denton Facebook page today. Uh, so the adult small group folks did this on Tuesday night. There's three major activities. Be looking for those. Again, this is anonymous unless you put your name on the bottom. And there are three different worship activities that you can submit to a forum. It is completely anonymous, even to me. There are absolutely no administrators that know who this is. And we're going to look through those. 
Uh, one of them talks about understanding, you know, Christian sexual ethics. Another one talks about negative sexual experiences that we've had that we want to sort of, you know, offer up to God. And the third one, I can't even remember what the third one is about. Who can remember that one? I mean, I wrote these. Yes. Who knows? Just read them. Um, it's been a while since I've written those. So, okay, anyway. Okay, good. Whatever that means. Um, in that context. So, you can submit these. We will read them in front of the church, some of them uh, that we deem worthy. You know, just kidding. Just some of the ones we feel like fit into the topics that we're going to talk about. Uh, if you want us to use your name, then make sure to put your name at the bottom. But if you want it to be anonymous, then keep it anonymous. If you want to write us a note saying, do not use this in church, I just want to write this for the sake of having it out there, then that's fine too. Uh, at some point, we might even post some of them if we get a lot of responses. But we've really had trouble getting you guys engaged in our worship activities. And I know the biggest deal is that you think, oh, someone's going to come up here and critique me, or um, maybe you just don't think about it during the week. Well, this is something that we're going to try to push uh, for you to actually do. It's anonymous and gives you the opportunity to just sort of submit something online without having to hand it in to me or something like that. All right? So I'll remind you about that at the end of this uh, talk, but just know that we have some activities for you out there, and we'll probably be posting some others, it sounds like, maybe for definition of worship and things like that, that you can you know, submit anonymously. And then you also don't have to read those. We'll be able to read them up here. Again, unless you want to put your name on it, and then we will. Okay, uh, let's read Song of Solomon 2. Um, I don't have my little handy Bible, so... I figured we would read this one just because it's so funny. I don't know. I just... It's so... I don't know what to do with it, you know? You read it, and it's like, what do you do? How, how do you preach a sermon on this, you know? I mean, I'm going to try my best, but I just thought it was so interesting, and so um, we're going to read it. We didn't read last week, so hopefully you're reading this along with us um, and struggling along with it um, with us, but yeah. Okay, so I'll read it. Uh, We're going to read all of two from the NIV. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall, and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter has passed, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock in the hiding place on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. So, pretty self-explanatory. I figured I would probably just read that to you and then not really preach a sermon because it kind of makes sense by itself. Yeah, I mean, that's why. So I'll probably keep this pretty short. Uh, By the way, uh, you know, uh, let's just be real. Last week, I preached for an hour and ten minutes. This week, there's no way I'm going to preach for less than 45. I realize it's impossible for me to take these topics and really teach 
about them from a general perspective without preaching over. So if you just need to leave after 30 minutes and leave, I'll, okay, or right now, Melissa. Um, and our Pedro, okay, good. Yeah, people are like, let me get some coffee, you know? 45-minute sermon. We don't do that a lot around here. Just get used to it. It could be worse. You could be at Garland Northeast with Ronnie. Um, just kidding. He's done a really good job of keeping his sermons in 30 minutes, unlike me. Um, so if you hear the audio, good job, you know? Um, so... Uh, yeah, this is going to be long. Sorry about that. Uh, although, I do have a lot more organization than last time. Because last time, let's be honest, there was really no organization. <laughs> I just threw up on you. Um, my ideas about gender. But I hope that this is orga- organized in a better way, even though it's not going to be any easier to understand. Uh, I'll tell you that. But at least it's, un- it's organized difficulty and not uh, unorganized difficulty. All right, I have two points. What? Did I say it wrong? No. Cool. Yeah, cool. Okay. All right, I have two points that seem um, a little bit different than each other, but I'm going to try to wrap them up into one, but maybe not. We'll see what happens. The first one is beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Not in the be- eye of the beholder. You've never heard that phrase? No, I wasn't listening. Sorry. Oh, you weren't listening, huh? Already, we're off to a bad start. Anne Haven was distracting you with whatever she was doing. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Not in the eye of the beholder. This gets longer, by the way. Um, but rather, in the create. This is my. This is just how I do life. Okay, I can't just write like five words. Of a, it has to be like a book title. Okay. Um, no, it's like worse than a book title. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, but rather is the crea- in the creative genius and character of the sculptor. Um, now, if you really wanted to make it cheesy and remember it, you could just say beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's in the eye of the molder. <laughs> okay, that's super bad. Um, but anyway, that's not how I wrote it because I would never do that. Uh, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, but rather in the creative genius and in the character of the sculptor. Of the sculptor. Guys, I mean, some of you are writing this down like, is this another language? Or all we're saying here is that you don't get to determine beauty, God does. That's it. What did you say? That's, that's, that's a good title. So you're like, that's a good t- title. I just use it like that, you know? Because I'm an academic, and if I don't, you know, present things in a really smart way that make me appear smart, then I'm failing at the job that I have. I get paid to present myself as being smart. Um, so, yeah, no, not at all. Now, you'll like my my second sermon. Uh, I mean, what my second uh, point? It's just sexuality is complicated. <laughs> That'll be easier, right? Yeah. I don't do titles really. Attraction and beauty. That is like perfect. Okay. Well, thank you. Attraction and beauty. Uh, next week we'll talk about sexuality and power. Um, so just two words. I don't know. That's helpful. First week we talked about gender and power. Gender and power, attraction to beauty, sexuality and power. Okay, is this enough of the question and answer time with you all? That's, anybody want to critique my sermon anymore? Or have any suggestions for me, tips for how to present well? You know, yeah? PowerPoint, yeah. I don't do PowerPoints, okay? Because all you go is just write down the PowerPoints, you don't even listen. Okay, great, perfect. Genesis 2 9. Right, if you notice, and I've been used a lot of Genesis because often Genesis is the place where a lot of well-meaning Christians have tried to um, prove that guys, girls, or sexuality is this way or that way. And so I want to you know, engage the text of Genesis uh, really carefully so as to um, you know, make sure that you have a ground to 
uh, you know, kind of to, to have a footing on. Uh, I remember, or yes, a couple people told me I made a little bit of an extreme statement uh, last week when I said that Genesis, Genesis 1 through 12 might should be taken allegorically. So let me explain that a little bit. Um, what I really meant is that there's a lot of uh, imagery and symbolism in Genesis 1 through 12 that signifies a whole lot more than just some of the literal meanings. I don't simply mean that we shouldn't take any of it literally and we should just go crazy with our, you know, um, allegorization. But just that there are a lot of symbols in, uh, in the beginning of Genesis and therefore, you know, some of what we're reading is symbolic of other things in addition to just the literal meaning. And that's really important in understanding uh, the beginning of Genesis. And we don't have time to go through that, but, you know, nonetheless, I'm still going to engage in it. So Genesis 2.9, where uh, God says of the trees in the garden, they were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. That's pretty interesting. Why make a statement uh, that they looked good? If our God is not a God that cares about beauty. Christians have been roundly criticized for focusing too much on the ethereal, the you know, imaginary world, the non-material. And here we have God at the beginning of Scripture making it really clear that these trees were beautiful, pleasing to the eye. And actually we're going to get um, you know, that same phrase when we talk about what the serp- uh, serpent did when uh, he confused or deceived Eve. But there was an aspect there of the other fruit that was forbidden also being pleasing to the eye. This is important. I do not think our scripture paints the world as less important than this heaven's world that we've all decided is the best and most important world. And a lot of the ideas that we're drawing from when we do that are a lot of platonic ideas, old ideas that were common uh, to the Greeks and to the Romans, that the material world was evil, uh, and anything that was non-material was good. That the material world was just symbolic uh, of the more transcendent nature of ideas and space and all this wonderful stuff. And as a result of that, you had a whole other group that you know went to the extreme opposite end. Uh, folks who are called Epicurean. They followed Epicurus, but Epicureans who would ultimately say, well, the material world is really the most important thing. That's what we got, right? Some of our terms about hedonism and things have come out of that. So we have these two bipolar states that have often dictated our conversation about the material world. And as Christians, a lot of us have just sort of fallen into one camp or the other without really paying much attention to what we're saying, what we're believing. But I believe the scriptural testimony, uh, unlike a lot of issues where we have to live in the tension between the two worlds, in this issue, we get to embrace both worlds. God wants us to embrace the beauty of physical things that have been made, made in His image. And when he talks about being, us being made in his image, he does not differentiate between the physical parts of us and the non-physical parts of us. He says simply that we were made in his image. Jesus himself should challenge this notion that somehow the material world is a bad thing, an evil thing, that beauty in its in, uh, specific physical forms is somehow not so good. The whole idea of God being embodied in a human was such an offensive idea up to this point. And God, uh, through Jesus, hopefully challenges our ideas of that. Um, so we are to embrace both the physical world and the non-physical world, whatever that means, without going too much into that, okay? And a part of that is understanding beauty, of recognizing beauty in its various contexts. I mean, you know, that's what photography does, right? I love photography because photography captures 
in a moment what most of us just take for granted from day to day. It's just you get to see this beautiful picture and it just stops you in your tracks. Huh? I'm not talking about the stuff that's like super doctored, you know? Chelsea showed me a picture of like these foxes on top of each other and she's like, oh, look how cute this is. And I'm like, Chelsea, that's obviously Photoshop. They're like the same exact fox. Oh, up and, you know, yeah. Yeah, whatever. So, I'm talking about the real picture stuff. The stuff that really like stops us in our tracks and, and makes us realize, wow, that's a real picture of something that actually happened. And we just go from one place to the next, you know, I'm missing all this stuff while we take pictures or whatever else. Now, I don't know a lot about photography, so whatever. Um, I'd be lying or something right now. Um, artwork, right? That does the same thing uh, for us. Music. When I talk to my students about things that really are awe-inspiring to them and that you know, are sacred to them and that really kind of get them going when it comes to excitement about life, these are some of the things that are initially mentioned. Um, amazing things that are beautiful, wonderful, good, God-ordained, beautiful things. So when it comes to sex and sexuality, you know, we've often fallen into two camps on this issue. We've, you know, become hedonistic some in some circles of Christianity, but probably more our society in general, where sex has become just this basic thing that we do for pleasure. And yeah, if it has some like cool spiritual overtones or intimate moments, then cool, that's great, you know, I see on the cake. But for the most part, we have sex because it's immensely pleasurable. Because it, you know, almost fulfill some need that we think we have to have sex. At least when you're young, you you tend to think like that. I don't know. Maybe some of you, I don't want to pigeonhole anyone. But then on the other hand, we have this sort of other group of people where sex is just sort of a bad thing. It's just like kind of something we have to do to procreate, you know? Um, Or the, the pleasure of sex isn't in the actual act of sex, but it's in some spiritual thing that happens in sex that's just amazing and so great and you know it's christian's way of basically talking about sex in really non-physical ways uh scott peck who matt clark likes oh. <laughs> scott peck is the matt clark as c.s lewis is the chad Doty. if you know that reference you know great that's um but scott peck believed that for non-christian people sexual orgasm was the closest they were going to get to an experience of god um that in an orgasm, you have this ability to sort of lose track of who you are and you begin to merge with someone else or something else. Um, and he believed that this was sort of like the closest you could get to, you know, really experiencing God without, uh, you know, being Christian. I mean, it's just a, such a crazy idea. I'm like, how did he get away with this idea? You know, I mean, Scott Peck's a great guy. He had a lot of great ideas, really famous uh, psychotherapist. But his idea of sex in that context to me was this sort of, ascetic view of sex, meaning that the physical parts of sex weren't really that important, and it was the spiritual, emotional moment in sex that was really so amazing and wonderful. And I think Christians do this a lot too uh, in our thinking about sex. So, we've got on the one hand, sex is amazing, which is what my students say, which is weird because most of them aren't even having very good sex anyway, at least according to research. Uh, Married people uh, are having good sex. Generally, people who have been together for a long time are having good sex, but young people have the worst sex. So I don't know why, when you're young, you think sex is so amazing and wonderful. But my students do. Um, is this bothering some of you? I mean, some of you are like, and your faces are like, he said sex <laughs> at least 13 times. <laughs> I'm trying to find a way to get up, but I don't know how to move. <laughs> um, 
And then you've got again on the other end of the spectrum that sex is just this kind of dirty thing. And I counsel no shortage of both men and women in you know, marriage relationships, particularly new marriage relationships, where women are having a really tough time, or sometimes men, in sex and sexuality because they've been taught from this Christian upbringing almost their entire life that this is just this awful, dirty, one, terrible thing. You know, it just doesn't feel right. That's like, God, dirty. And I mean, it is kind of dirty, but, um, you know, even dirty in the sense that, you know, it's like this, uh, it's not appropriate. It's not God-ordained. It's really just supposed to have some kind of meaning and significance beyond the physical thing that's going on. And certainly I'm not advocating that it doesn't have any significance, but I'm saying that we embrace both as Christians, both the physical pleasure and purpose of sex and any kind of emotional and spiritual aspects that that has. Um, and a lot of us just are kind of uncomfortable with that idea. We're uncomfortable talking about it. Look at us. We're so Victorian, you know. I get up and have a whole sermon about sex and everyone just gets so uncomfortable and like ready to laugh at the you know, quickest uh, mess up that I have, you know. Oh my gosh, okay, big deal. So we've got to uh, be careful about those two worlds uh, and falling into one of those two camps, okay. The Bible, I think, embraces both the form and appearance of sex as a physical thing and as a really good thing. Uh, and some of the less physical, non-material aspects of sex as a joining of intimacy between two people. But I don't think that either one of them is supposed to be elevated above the other in the sense that they should be at odds or uh, you know, competing with each other. That one is somehow better than the other. Uh, and in fact, I think it's, it's our ability to be able to kind of understand those two um, and their place that, uh, that makes sex such a great thing. I'll talk about that later because that's my most high-minded idea that I'm going to try to unpack as we go forward. Um, there's also this wonderful thing in psych, uh, sociology called the symbolic interaction approach. And for those of you who've studied sociology, maybe you loved this, maybe you hated it. And it's a really wonderful idea. And the idea is simply that uh, we do not care that much about the objective world. The objective world doesn't impact us that much. What impacts us is our perception of the world around us. So we're not that interested in figuring out what's actually going on. What we're far more interested in is how we perceive what's going on. I always use the example in my class, but no one thinks this is funny. I think it's hilarious, but maybe it's because they think I'm insulting them, which I kind of am. Uh, is I use the example of two of you in my class have, have convinced each other that you're brilliant people. You use language that you don't know. It doesn't make much sense, but to each other it sounds really good. And you know, you, you're presenting each other as really smart. Well, so what's going to dictate your behavior to each other? The fact that you believe you're both smart or the fact that really you guys, in terms of like IQ and intelligence, might be a really low bottom of the totem pole. What's going to matter more for dictating you know, how you behave with each other? Well, that's a whole question. Which one works? Is it that you know that you're not smart or is it that we perceive certain things in our reality to be true and therefore they become true to us? All right. Well, I don't know a better uh, example of this than sex in our society. We have all of these perceptions about sex, and for many of us, they've become true. But we've got to be careful. Because just because we have perceptions and preferences and some of these things doesn't mean that that's reality. And what defines reality often, again, is not you know, that I perceive this thing to be true or that thing to be true. But what ultimately determines our reality is a reality that we've determined that God has made. And that's it. That's the only reality. And not that God hasn't allowed us and given us the ability to perceive things. He's obviously given us that gift. That we can walk away from one conversation and two different people can have two different understandings of what just happened. (laughs) That's obviously, in my mind, I think a God-given gift. But we do have to be careful when it comes to our preference and perception. Part of the problem that we're addressing right now in our society is our society has largely elevated your preference. And I'm not talking about sexual preference here. I'm talking about preferences as a general term. 
and our perception as the reality. The only reality. There is no such thing as an absolute reality created by God. The only reality is the reality that you perceive to be true. Well, that's really tricky when you're talking about human perception. Because our perceptions are wrong all the time with just about anything. Right? Those of you who are interested in the criminal psychology stuff, maybe you've looked at some of those Harvard professors on YouTube that have a criminal come in and like rob someone and then everyone has to like describe what the criminal looked like. Well, everyone's got a different perception. We're actually terrible at this kind of stuff. Because our perceptions are largely based on all kinds of things. How much attention we are paying, our personality, the way we judge. Our brains like to fill in the blanks. For whatever reason, we're not comfortable with blanks. So we fill them in, you know, kind of like ad-lib. And that's our perception. But as Christians, we have to be very, very careful uh, with, uh, with this. So, two issues that arise from this. Okay? Number one um, is, on the one hand, we tend to be consumers, and we tend to sort of define what's good based on our preferences. Things that we want, things that we've defined as true, things that, in our opinion, are good. I dare say this is what a lot of us do when we come to a worship service. I had someone told me within the last two weeks, well, I would never come to your church because it's, I really prefer the contemplative form of worship. <laughs> I'm going to be like, all right, do you think we don't contemplate anything like in our service? Like, What does that mean? I mean, I know what she's talking about. She's talking about a specific type of worship that's much more liturgical and you know, solemn. And okay, I mean, I get that. I understand that. And fine, that's what you like. You know, I want to be like, yeah, that's what I like too. Um, but, you know, I, I don't go to church based on my preference for worship. But we have all these preferences, all these opinions, all these things that we believe in our reality are good, right, true, and everything else. And we limit all of these other things that could be good, right, true, beautiful, because they don't fit into our perceptions and our preferences. And if it doesn't fit into our perception and our preferences, then all of a sudden it becomes ugly or evil or wrong or bad or whatever else. And we just do that. We do it for a number of reasons. One, we want to be better than everyone around us. We want to be unique. My preferences is just sort of a better list of preferences than you have. You know, you're so like not. Chelsea challenges me all the time on how elitist I can be with some of my preferences. Like I just believe that I'm better at all of you uh, at tasting food. Um, (laughs) Just do. I mean, I just do. I know it's not true, but I believe it's true. And so I love to talk about restaurants as if, you're eating at restaurants that are really gross, and I'm eating at restaurants that are, like, the best. <laughs> all right? Driving is that way. We do this all the time. There's a million examples of, of how this works in our life, okay? Um, but there's a real problem in that. Because if we begin to limit beauty and limit what's good in life based on our perceptions, then we miss all kinds of stuff that God has done. All kinds of stuff that He's called good and He's called beautiful... We just don't even consider because it doesn't fit into our preference list. That's a real problem. Particularly when this comes to human attributes. Because this preference deal doesn't just sit with inanimate objects. We get preferences for people we want to spend time around. Preferences for qualities of people we feel like fit in with our persona. It's why as a country, we talk about equal opportunity and we really love that idea. But an idea we love just as much is group superiority. My group's better than yours. Our preferences are better than yours. They're more refined. They're more spiritual. They're more fill in the blank. 
but we miss trying to determine what God has done and what are the aspects of beauty in our world that we've just sort of forgotten about, not paid attention to. It's one of the things that you're going to get from Song of Solomon. You can't possibly read through 1 and 2 without seeing how much the author is attaching synthetic world to not that great, but the natural world as a wonderful and beautiful thing. Which makes sense. If this girl is actually in Solomon's harem, she's probably inside a lot of the time. And she associates her, you know, being forced into sexual, um, basically slavery, which is really what it was, um, into an indoor environment and her ability to actually have a lover and enjoy life and find beauty in outdoors. Now, I'm not saying that's true. We should all go meet outside or all go be nature freaks. I mean, you know, whatever. But I think there's a real theme here. Because it's part of what he's talking about, that men think that they've created such beautiful and wonderful things, and then they've forgotten that that stuff pales in comparison to the stuff that you walk out and see that God already did. Not to mention the fact that the whole way that they created that stuff in the first place was because God created this amazing and wonderful thing called the human mind, and a wonderful and amazing thing called human culture, and so on and so forth. So we have consumerism and preference on the one hand, which is really kind of pragmatism. Whatever works for me, whatever is useful for me, I'm going to like. Okay? And vice versa. It's the sort of what he says. It's the fruit was good to eat. Oh, good to eat. That sounds good. It's pragmatic. I think I'll go with that. Sounds good. So we've got that on the one hand. And then we have what, I, what uh, Ian Proven calls worm theology on the other. And I love this. He bases this on Psalm 22 where uh, David is saying, you know, I'm a worm and not a man. And he calls this worm theology. Some of us, you know, our idea of being holy and good is believing that we're terrible people. <laughs> I'm sorry, but even the song that we sing, when there's nothing good in me, at what point does that happen? At what point is there nothing good left in us? <laughs> where did you get that idea from? Please tell me where the scripture tells us that there's a point in our lives where nothing good is left. I don't see it anywhere. But we sing songs like that, you know? I'm not saying that that song is somehow bad and is all convincing you that you're all terrible, evil people. But there's a whole group of people who believe that, you know, human and human flesh and all this stuff is just all terrible. We all got to go do the most painful thing possible. If we can just do the most painful thing possible, then we'll be spiritual people. And you got whole communities detaching themselves from society and living on nothing, starving themselves. This was a really common practice in the early church fathers who love to just go and be monks and separate themselves from all society and pretty much not sleep and not eat. And that was the true sense of spirituality. Uh, Hello, welcome to Buddhism or Stoicism. Both philosophies that predate that philosophy that we attach to Christianity. That's not the goal either. Ecclesiastes says the wise man avoids both extremes. We have to be careful when we're looking at beauty and when we're talking about this topic of what God has created, and even sexuality, that we're not running against two of these extremes. All the body is bad, all of our desires are bad, everything about us is bad, or just do what you feel, you know, everything about you is decently good. You know, these are simplistic philosophies. Philosophies that don't really make us think about the world around us. They're just easy to jump on board with. They don't require any depth of thought, or hard decision making, or looking at life in the context of actual humans. I can just more or less decide. But they're equally bad in terms of their extreme. At least in my mind. Did you guys hear that Playboy is not doing full frontal nudity anymore? Yeah, threw that out of the ballpark, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not doing full frontal nudity anymore. (laughs) 
I'm not sure that they're doing it because people are like offended by it. I think they're doing it because you can pretty much get full frontal nudity on any website you want to now. I think they're doing it because consumeristically they're going to try to set themselves apart as more of like a post, you know, kind of secular, like nudes are cool kind of images and stuff. Um, I just read this article on NPR and I thought it was really interesting. And, um, but, you know, so we have this huge problem with Playboy and with nudes in our society. And we've often compared, been compared with European society that uses the use of nudes in photography a lot more than we do and in advertisements a lot more than we do. And Christians are often called Victorian and they can't talk about sex and can't think about sex. Just look at our sex education laws in our society and you can begin to see what the problems are. Is it no wonder we have guys who are looking at pornography at a young age trying to figure out what sexuality is about? Is this some terrible, awful desire within them to objectify women? Sure, probably in part, certainly Satan uses that. But a lot of it's just trying to figure out what the body looks like, where stuff's at. A lot of people don't know. When you're a young boy, you don't know. You just don't. You're just wondering, what's that look like exactly, you know? And we've all been there, or at least many of us, I think, have been there. But we have this inability to be able to talk about that stuff a lot of times and be comfortable with it. It just gets too weird. And so less than 20% of parents have ever had a sex conversation with their child that wasn't vague or gross, okay? <laughs> and then you wonder why we were the leader in the industrial world with teen pregnancies. Uh, hello? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe because you're not talking to your kids, Okay. And the whole idea of a comprehensive sex education, let's just teach them everything, has just as many problems as our abstinence-only education. So don't get me you know, talking about politics and thinking that comprehensive sex education is somehow better, too. You, you teach a whole bunch of kids when they're 12 or 13 about sex, and they are going to want to go have sex. I'm sorry, but these comprehensive sex education folks are saying, teach them everything, it'll be in their best interest. I don't think so. You teach them comprehensive sex education when the time is right, then it's helpful. You teach them too early, and they're headed out, and they're going to go party. Oh, wow, okay, that must mean that I can go do that. So, sorry, that's my side political comment real quick. So I can, <laughs> all of you who are thinking absence only is so terrible, you know, whatever. Uh, it is terrible, but just as terrible as a lot of the comprehensive sex education that I have seen written. So those are the two issues we have. What's the solution to those issues? This text talks a lot about beauty and the beauty that God's created. Sexual beauty, and there's a lot of sexual erotic imagery in chapter 2, you know? It's just like uncomfortable reading some of the stuff that, that she and he are saying. It just makes us feel like, ooh. And we'll read that in like a book, but we have no idea that was in the Bible. My goodness. So we try to allegorize it away, right? Can't, can't mean that. Oh, dear. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> but the Bible, is, there it is. God ordained in our scripture. Sexual love. Both the physical aspects of it. Uh, and any other aspect you know you want to, uh, to kind of talk about. We've got to embrace both wisely, guys. The scripture talks a lot about the difference between appearance and essence. And talks about the importance of not mistaking the appearance of something and getting that confused with its essence. Think about all the scriptures that's talked about. You know, one of my favorites is 1 Samuel 16, 7. And I'm just going to write this down or just kind of list all these off for you real quick. And you can go back and research this on your own. Okay. 1 Samuel 16, 7, where Samuel, who's this incredibly spiritual man, goes and he's going to pick the next king, right? And so what does he do? We think he's spiritual, so what's he going to do? He's going to go pick the most spiritual guy, right? What does he do instead? Picks the most good-looking guy. Because in his mind, the most good-looking must mean that he's the most spiritual. We think that's stupid, but we do this kind of stuff all the time. We focus on the appearance, and then we think that as a result of the appearance, the essence much, you know, probably follows that. The essence of who he is is good because he's prettier. We do this all the time, by the way, in hiring. Attractive people, attractive according to our definition. People get treated better in society. 
the more likely to get hired. There's a really great feminist uh, who's doing some research on this. Her name is uh, Kim Hebel, uh, H-E-B-L, and she's over at A&M, and she does these uh, studies where she has people, like, for instance, walk into a store and have a hat on that says gay and proud and another hat that says Texan and proud and then just watches how people interact with this person. And we're just mean to people who we don't like and who we, you know, the gay and proud folks, they just got treated a lot worse than those folks who had a Texas and proud hat on. Is that really what we think Jesus would do? Give people less eye contact? Treat them with harsh language? I don't think so. But it's what happens, right? We begin to judge people based on appearance type things. And the scripture, I think, is very clear on not letting appearance trick you. And you know, you have that wonderful, famous scripture there from God in that passage. Men look at a lot of things. But God looks at the heart. You're tricked up because you see this outside stuff, but you have no idea what's going on inside. And the outside inside isn't even really a good differentiation, but we'll just say it. You see the appearance, but you don't even begin to understand the essence. John 7, verse 24, where where Jesus is chiding the Pharisees for... uh, not letting him heal a man's hand on the Sabbath. He says, why do you guys judge by mere appearances? Don't you understand the whole purpose and the essence of the law was to heal people, not to keep them from doing something? I love how Rick Watts says it. The law wasn't... Actually, I can't remember it. Actually, can anyone remember it? People keeping and keeping people. Yeah, people keeping and keeping people. The law wasn't made for people. Wait, people weren't made for the law. The law was made for people. God didn't create the law so he could chip up a whole lot of people. He created it for their well-being. Rick Watts defines holiness as people-keeping, not Sabbath-keeping. Meaning, not like retaining people, but, <laughs> but actually making sure that we're doing what, what people need. We're taking care of them. We're keeping them. Our major goal is to shepherd them. I love that idea. I think that's so wonderful. Matthew seven fifteen, which I have no idea what it says, actually, so just go read it. <laughs> I didn't write anything on it. I did these all from memory, but apparently I can't remember that one now. Who knows? Maybe someone can find it and tell me what it is. Oh, that's sheep and wolf's clothing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, sheep and wolf clothing. Uh, which is a great one. Second Corinthians 10, uh, 1 through eleven fourteen. 14. Uh, this is a huge section, but Paul's talking about this. False spiritual prophets. People who come looking really great and good, but the essence is completely corrupt. Guys, as Christians, we ought to care about the essence of things. We're not going to get tricked up by the appearance of things. Too many people don't have enough time to look into the essence of things, of who people are. We immediately make snap judgments based on the appearance. And that is just sinful. There's no other way around it. As Christians, we're called to care both about appearance and essence, but knowing that appearance doesn't always mean that the essence of something is going to look like that. Because something looks a little scary on the outside might not mean that it's actually that scary when we begin to discover it. And if this is too a little bit philosophical for you, I'm sorry. I don't know how else to think about it. Okay? Um, yeah, I'm going to go talk about that in a moment. I'm going to do my best, actually. If I don't, come back to me. Uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 23 is another go- uh, great place to go. I also can't remember what that one says. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, harsh treatment of the body. Um, this is wonderful because Paul's saying that this asceticism stuff, where you treat your body harshly and you follow all these rules, looks like spirituality. But he says this has got no spiritual nature to it at all. The essence of it is just people showing off. We're conscientious. We might kind of like 
gravitate towards those rules-based type organizations. If you're kind of like me and you don't seem to have any rules in your mind anywhere, you just didn't pick them up from anywhere, you kind of head towards those, those places where you go, ah, anything goes, it's fine. I wonder sometimes how much personality plays a role in uh, denomination. I just wonder. Um, I, think, I think maybe uh, it does, but who knows. And I just do, drew two distinctions there, but there are obviously more. So Colossians uh, 2, 16-23. So, God has made both the image and essence of things beautiful and is rele- uh, redeeming them even as we speak. He's made them both beautiful. Both the way that things come across in terms of their form and the function of those very things. Both beautiful. Now, have those been tempered by sin and by you know, physical problems and disabilities? There's a whole... you know growing uh, topic and all that, and it's so confusing and hard. I read a book that was really interesting that talked about physical disabilities and cognitive disabilities as being God-ordained. Uh, I don't know what I think about that. So in, and he wasn't saying it in a, in a mean way. In fact, he was representing a lot of Christian folks with disabilities who were saying God created some of these folks to be exactly like this for the community's benefit. And we tend to think of them as sort of like less than. They're not real people. They're not going to be full until heaven. What the heck does that mean? How? How is that disability any different than the disabilities all of us have when it comes to sin in the bigger scheme of things? I mean, obviously, practically speaking, it's a lot different. So let's not try to combine those two uh, in that regard. But it's just an interesting thought. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to think about that. This most comes out, I think, in our self-image. I I talk to guys and girls all the time in ministry who just think really poorly of themselves. They just do. And then plenty of other people who should think poorly of themselves who just don't, man. They're just living it up. You know? <laughs> Stinky, dirty, everything in between. They're just living it up. The majority of the time, self-image problems. All the time. And there's no real fundamental difference. We tend to think of that as being a girl problem. It's not a girl problem. It is not a girl problem. When I was young, um, you know, I had so many body image um, problems when it came to just feeling like I was just too skinny. I wasn't a real man. I wasn't strong enough. And a lot of the guys that I hung out with were athletes. And so I poured my heart and soul into working out, you know, to the point where I ended up having two surgeries years later for really wrong um, weightlifting practices. Um, oh, <laughs> I mean, they weren't terrible surgeries, but they, <laughs> never mind what that was about. Um, but I did. I just figured, you know, to be a man, you had to be strong and you had to be, you know, as good looking as, you know, the most good looking people around you. Otherwise, otherwise you were just less than. And I did. I mean, I, I know you, you might look at me and think, you know, I mean, you're not ugly. Uh, so you don't have an excuse to, you know, think that, you know, all these terrible things about yourself. But it doesn't matter often how be- outwardly beautiful people are. Some of the most beautiful people. Isn't there a country song about that? Um, just kidding. I don't know. I think there is. You don't know you're beautiful? I don't know. Is it? No? Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, there's a country one I'm thinking about, okay? Um one Direction song? No. No. I'm just kidding there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I apologize. Um, so, yeah, uh, self-image problems. I'm going to talk about that next week uh, when I talk about the sexuality and power one and you know, kind of go into that a little bit more. And, Dad, if you could stop texting me, that would be really great. Uh, I don't know what you're texting me about because it seemed like you had the wrong person, but thank you. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so... God has made both the image and essence of things beautiful and is redeeming them even as we speak. I don't know what that means. I really genuinely, my dad and I had an argument yesterday about heaven and what that's going to look like. I don't know. 
Okay, we didn't. We had a discussion. Um, I don't know. I don't know what redeemed looks like. But I'll tell you one thing. The Bible, I think, is really clear that that means resurrected bodies. There's one thing that I feel pretty strongly about in the Scripture. It's resurrected bodies. So if you don't like your body, maybe you've got to figure out how to start liking it, all right? I'm just kidding. I don't know if you're going like, to have the same one. I don't know if it's going to be like calories will be like good for you all of a sudden. I mean, I don't know. I don't, none of us know, okay? Probably more likely than anything is we're going to have just simply a better and more comfortable ability to see each other for what we really are rather than just simply focus on the appearance, um, which catches us up. Shallow Hell. Shallow right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. There's so many comedies like that that you would think are like so stupid, but have some really good meanings. I'm about to throw one out there that I know is going to offend a whole lot of you, and I'm sorry, but 40-year-old virgin. Um, I think it is a great critique on sexuality and sexual preference in our society. Uh, I also think Anchorman 2 is a really good critique on news media, but <laughs> surprise, out of nowhere, man. Anchorman 1 is total trash, but 2... <laughs> That's a lie. Someone said that's a lie. <laughs> okay, sorry. Ooh. So, um, while I don't think I ever wondered, you know, about my identity as a man, I certainly wondered what it meant like to, you know, what it meant for, to be a man in our society, and particularly a young boy. What does that even mean? Am I really as manly as all these people I see around me? Um, and people told me all kinds of funny stuff that never helped, right? You know, like, I like shoes, all right? I have a lot of shoes. And apparently if you have a lot of shoes, that means you can't be a man, all right? I don't think so, all right? Uh, I like shoes, and I'm a man still, and that's okay. That's an okay thing. But someone when I was young told me that, and it really messed me up, you know? <laughs> I had to wear the same pair of shoes all the time. They got, you know, outfits I couldn't coordinate. It was just really tough, so. <laughs> you see stupid examples like that that people talk about. So this is an issue for us, and we're going to have to try to figure this out, and I don't have enough time to go into my notes here on self-image. I'm going to have to get to the sexuality part of this. Um, yep, because I'm already at my time. All right, sexuality like gender is complicated. I'm only going to give you a few ideas on this, and I'm not going to dig into them. Uh, and the reason is because we have a whole piece of theology on this in April. There's no way for me to treat this topic of sexuality um, effectively in a, you know, even 45 minutes, even in a... A three or four week series, we couldn't do it. So if you really want to hear um, some interesting thoughts and ideas on gender, and particularly sexuality, you're going to have to come to our Pizza Theology on April 10th. Okay, I'll just say that. It's an all-day event. It's like 2 to 10 or 9 or... Well, we didn't make it longer? I thought we were going to make it 7 hours, 3 to 9. If that's true, then it's probably Okay, so 6 to 7 hours of talking about this. So you really are interested in this issue? Come then. If you want a snippet, then I'm going to give you the snippet right here of some of the ideas here, okay? Okay, why did God create the genders? Uh, well, if you go back and look through the scripture, and I challenge you to do this, try to find, lesson I were talking about this week, try to find the biblical woman and the biblical man. With the exception of a few passages that seem to be vague and confusing, the scripture has a lot less to say about gendered behavior than you may be comfortable with. Saying, here's how a guy works and here's how a girl works. Emphatic statement saying, this is appropriate male behavior, this is appropriate female behavior. Now, you could argue that they didn't do that because most people just sort of assumed it and knew it. And no one would have possibly thought that today we would be challenging these assumptions. But I have a tendency to you know, think I don't believe that, since the Bible is a timeless document, um, and God knew that and foreknew it, that maybe 
uh, some of our gender ideas aren't near as biblical as we think. It's my thinking there. But again, on the spectrums here, some people believe you know, men and women were cre- uh, created differently simply for procreation. These folks often tend to have really see no real important distinction between the sexes. Just procreation. Just a practical thing that God did. In heaven, are we going to be male and female? Well, we're not going to be married, so probably we're not going to be having sex. Even though when I was young, I thought maybe sex... Oh, never mind. I probably shouldn't say that. Um, you can imagine what a young man might think uh, about heaven. Um, to say the uh, Islamic idea of lots of virgins sounded like a really good idea to me uh, when I was young. Um, not that I... Okay, I am. Get out of this. Okay, so... Um, who knows? I mean, who knows if we're going to have male and female in heaven? I, I don't know. That's weird. It's actually, if you think about it, you know, Paul seems to say those statements about neither if female nor male. I don't know. Maybe it's just about procreation. I tend to believe a little bit more that there's some specific aspect of his character that's communicated in both of those, you know, roles. But we have to be really careful with that too, right? Because if you believe that a certain aspect of God is only communicated through men and a certain aspect of God is only communicated through women, then the only true way to experience God is by getting heterosexually married. And I don't believe that. Because I believe singlehood is just as important. So that's challenging too. (laughs) So be careful what you believe. Uh, Think about it. But this is complicated. That's just the beginning of it. I mentioned last time a very uh, confusing concept that some of you really struggle with. And I I talked about how gender generally by sociologists is determined on two independent scales. Meaning that I could be strongly masculine and strongly feminine, but have masculine sexual organs... And so, therefore, consider myself a male. Or I could consider myself a female, or I could consider myself neither. Who cares? I've met a lot more young people who just really don't care what gender they are. And they don't think it's that important to know. Um, You know, I don't tend to think that's very good, but that's just me. Okay? So, independent scales for that. Or I may be a male with sexual organs, but have really low identification with the masculine, you know, roles. And a lot stronger identification... uh, uh, identification with feminine roles. Does that make me a girl? Or does that make me a man who, according to my society, doesn't really fit into the whole masculine identity? And then there's some people who don't identify with either. <laughs> um, this is not so easy. And with the exception of the extreme cases where you have a male with sexual organs who absolutely identifies as only a female, uh, where we get into some of the transgendered issues, the majority of us are actually probably somewhere along those spectrums. It's not so cut and dry. I'm not just 100% male and 0% female. Okay? Because those are changing and society changes those things. So who decides the scale? We know in different cultures it changes. But I think the real question for us as Christians is to go back to the Bible and try to figure out, so what does the scripture truly say about masculinity and femininity? And when it doesn't say certain stuff, we've got to decide, okay, well, what do we do with that? And maybe that's the wrong question we're asking. I don't know, but I think it's a good question. Well, sexuality gets even more difficult. Same thing. Okay? Two different scales. But this time we have two different scales for at least three different things. We have orientation and identity. Do you identify as primarily heterosexual or primarily uh, or heterosexual um, or primarily as somewhere in the between? Or, you know, there's scales. Do you like women a lot and do you like men a lot? And then you would be bisexual, right? Or you like neither, and then you might be asexual. And there's about a million terms for sexuality that all my students always just want to talk about. And it's always pansexual. Everyone wants to hear, it just sounds funny. So people want to know what pansexual means. And I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Um, Attraction and preference. So just because I have a natural attraction 
does that mean that I'm identifying as, uh, you know, that sexual orientation? So there's two different scales. And then behavior. And a whole third scale for folks looking and saying, well, you know, in the past, I've, and particularly young people, experimented or been abused or whatever, and maybe, you know, parts of it were sexually arousing. So what does that make me in terms of orientation? This is such a confusing thing for a lot of people. And our society, add on top of that, that identity seems to be like, the sexual identity seems to be one of the most important things about you, which is itself an argument, only adds confusing and complication to this matter. It's complicated, guys. There's no way around it. There are really no simple answers here. I don't think. But, like anything that's complicated and complex, we have an amazing God that teaches us what He's done in us and what He's continually doing. Who's not some mean, terrible lightning bolt Zeus who strikes us down every time we make a misstep. And so I think this issue is probably one of the issues we ought to most wade into in Christianity today. Because it seems like what our culture is interested in, it seems like an opportunity for us to not just rest back on our own certainty, but to truly pursue God and to pursue people in this matter and to really try to figure out what's going on here. So I think we shouldn't shy away from having some of these really important conversations. Uh, okay, a few more thoughts before you know, I end my, yes, of course, our sermon. Nature, nurture of attraction. Oh. Did I choose to be this way or did it happen to me? Who knows? Who's ever decided the nature-nurture debate? And for heterosexual folks who are trying to tell homosexual folks that, oh, well, you know, you just chose that. Oh, well, I'd like to see you choose the other way. Tell a heterosexual person. Can you imagine choosing to be homosexual? Well, now you know what it feels like to be a homosexual person or same-sex attracted person trying to choose the other one. There's something a little bit more deep to this than simply I chose it or my background dictated this. Does that mean that I'm saying there's a predisposition to sexual orientation? I don't know. No one knows. There's not a gay gene. Even though we love this comma gene, we always want the God gene, the gay gene, the warrior gene, all these things that we can just sort of with one gene prove that people are the way they are. This is an ongoing debate. But as a Christian, am I decently uh, comfortable with the idea that po- possibly people have a predisposition to same-sex attraction? Sure. Just like they have a predisposition to all kinds of things. Some Catholics would call that original sin. I don't know the theology behind it. I simply know with a lot of the folks that I'm talking to who have same-sex attraction, they're not pretending. They didn't sit down and write on a sheet, well, pros and cons of sexual orientation. think I'll go with the other way on this one. And nor is there something obvious in their background that completely explains, you know, what they were doing. This guy didn't have a dad. Oh, homosexual. Some of the research out there and some of even our ideologies about this has been far too simple and far too ignorant. Okay, what do we do with this? The nature and nurture of attraction. This is tough stuff. And a lot of Christians have wanted to reside on this idea that God can change you if you have a homosexual orientation. Sounds great. Really does. But from a ministerial perspective and from someone who's lived life among people who have had some strong same-sex attraction, that is not a quick process, if it happens at all. And the whole reactive impulse, the pray the gay away movement, did a whole lot more damage than it did good. Because it tried to pray the gay away, and that just didn't work, believe it or not, right? It's tough. This is not like alcoholism. This is not like greed. These are issues that really are intertwined with who we are, and they're challenging to figure out. Okay? And it's not helpful that there's not a lot of good science out there because it's such a highly politicized environment that no one wants to do any research. Mark Regeneris, who's a, 
a sociologist at UT Austin, came out with one of the largest studies about homosexual parents versus heterosexual parents. And he more or less found that kids raised in homosexual households have some troubles that heterosexual households don't, simply don't have. And the LGBT movement killed him, killed his whole career as a result of his study, calling him all kinds of terrible names, and it was terrible. But have Christians done the same stuff to LGBT research? Because most of the research out there shows that homosexual parents raise just as much as good kids as heterosexual parents. There were a lot of small studies. His study was just the biggest one. So what do you do? That's not a surprise to any of you, right? We showed you the gender differences, science. One says male and female brains are totally different. You know, one says they're not. Science is not incredibly helpful to us in this, right now, in this current time and season of our society. So without that, that kind of certainty, a lot of us, what we have left is to rely on God and the conversations that we have with each other. And again, we have these two sort of pressures, right? This pressure to please people. Too many churches have gotten on the same-sex you know, marriage bandwagon, not because they've thought about it theologically, but simply because they're the kinds of churches that generally when society decides something, they decide with them. That's not a good enough reason. The apostles in you know, Acts 5 were pleased to obey the authority to the best of their ability. But when it came down to stuff that they thought was absolutely against what God wanted, what was their response? We're going to please God, not you. As Christians, we've got to have the same response. Now, I'm not making a stance on same-sex marriage, but if we decide, you know, that that's just not okay and that we should somehow be legislating against it because God wants us to, we better do what He says. But on the other hand, we have this disrespect for people's personhood and experience. It's like some people, you know, they, they're just convinced that everyone out there with the same-sex orientation is lying about how hard it is. Lying about how easy it is to change. And a lot of times we don't listen to folks within the Christian community who have same-sex attraction. It's not safe for them. Because as soon as they come out saying, hey, I've got a same-sex attraction, we've got 100 people around them trying to pray the gay away. We're not, we're not respecting their personhood. We're not respecting who they are before God. We want to fix them. We want to get rid of this awful problem that makes us feel weird and it challenges our sense of beauty and understanding about the world. That's not what Jesus did. He delved into the world of people's problems and then gave them the choice. No coercion. No shortcut responses. No quick fixes. And so we've got to be able to respect what people are really saying. It's one of the main reasons I've invited three and maybe four now Christian folks. I don't know if it's going to be March or April to share about their testimony. Guys, we have a lot of folks in our church who struggle with same-sex attraction. In fact, if the you know, statistics are correct, it's going to be somewhere around 8 to 10%. Actually, it's interesting. More women do than men, but... There's a huge part of that could just be societal. Um, women tend to be more in the middle uh, in the uh, sexual orientation or attraction scale than guys do. Guys tend to be two polar opposites, either you know like same sex or don't, um, and you know uh, girls a little bit less so. And that's itself an interesting question that we don't have time to go into. But I want you to listen to them because for some of you who have become so like, okay, well let's just legalize same sex marriage and who cares about it? What do you do with Christian people? who are themselves same-sex attracted, who really have a problem with that idea. Are we listening to them? Have you decided just to be liberal on this issue because it's easy? And for those of you who are hardline, it's, it's always you know, a sin, it's a terrible thing, and you don't want to differentiate between attraction and behavior. Um, are you willing to listen to someone who really have their whole life has been celibate because they believe strongly that just because they're same-sex attracted doesn't mean they can act on it? We should be celebrating people who are willing to, to give that much up for Christ when it comes to living their lives like that. That's a 
hard decision. I can't even begin to imagine how hard that would be for me. I mean, I didn't really want to get married in the first place, but I always knew I had a choice to. And then when I met the most beautiful, wonderful woman in both form and function. (laughs) Anyway. um, We've got to listen to people's experiences. We've had two couples, I think, leave our church over the last year (laughs) because of my stance on uh, same-sex attraction. I, I... they say that they haven't, but I, it's, the timing is just too weird. And one of them, it's because I was not liberal enough, and the other one's because I wasn't too conservative enough. You know? Dan, if you do, Dan, if you don't. I'm sorry for using a cuss word. I, uh... You know? And that's what we're dealing with a lot of this stuff. But guys, I'm not interested in the day what our society thinks, nor am I interested in what the church thinks as a whole. I'm interested in what God thinks. Yeah. And we're going to figure that out in the context of community. Hopefully as a church. But not in the institution of the church. And if that means that some of us land on different places with this issue, okay. So long as your in, you know, integrity is intact from searching it out and understanding and having friendships and knowing what's, what's going on and you're not just capitulating to some social pressure, to either the church's pressure or your parents' pressure or uh, society's pressure, then I think we're going to be okay. I'm not even going to talk about the role of church and state. Forget that. That's got to go next week. Oh my goodness. What is happening here in this world? Um, prioritization of sin. Oh my goodness! Christians do often thought about sex as, sex as being like the worst sin, and so it's like, I mean, you know, what happened to that? All sins are the same kind of stuff. It's like all sins are the same except for sex. Then it's really bad. Um, oh my goodness. Okay. So I leave you with this thought: God's heart in this. Are you really pursuing God's heart in this, or are you pursuing pursuing a certainty of belief? Because a certainty of belief is not pursuing a trust relationship with God. If you really believe God cares about folks in our society who have same-sex attraction, whether they're Christians, not Christians, whatever, you believe that He wants what's best for them, you believe that He wants to use you to share the gospel with them and for them to share the gospel with you, then you're going to be fine trusting God on this. Coming to answers that are answers that some are just going to left unanswered and some are going to be, God's going to give you a word. I definitely be, believe he did that to me. Uh, when it comes to this kind of issue, generally I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever you want to do. That's my personality. And as I thought, saw, sat and thought about it and prayed about it and figured it out and tried to say, what am I going to do? I felt like God was really leading me to remember what I just shared with you. Remember the voices of people in the church who are struggling with this issue particularly those voices who are saying, it's not okay. This is not okay. We want to try to figure out how, you know, to, to figure out what life going to look like as someone who's same-sex attracted. And listen to their voices. Don't be so rushed to judge, okay, it's a bit not a big issue. Don't worry about it. Just let people marry if they want to. If they're gay, it doesn't matter. Because what are you doing when you do that? Um, you know, and that's at least what I heard God telling me, you know. I don't know. He was trying to kind of pull me back over a little bit away from where I'd gone. So here's three kind of tests of whether or not I feel uh, you you can test whether you're really trusting God in these things um, or whether you've come down to a decision to just believe what you want to believe so that you can have some quick certainty. Number one is if your knowledge comes from biblical knowledge or extra biblical study. This is one I always struggle with. As a sociologist, you know, the, the line for me to toe is that sexual orientation is simply a choice, a decision we make got predispositions, we shouldn't be discriminating against people. As someone of faith, I can't make that decision like that, because that's what authority does that rest on? If you're a Christian, you, your authority comes from the Word of God, not from the Bible, so to speak, but the spoken Word of God. Whether you find that in the Scripture, whether you find it through other Christians professing to believe, 
who have the Holy Spirit with them, but we, we find that in spoken from the Word of God. So uh, where do you really have it? Is it biblical knowledge? Have you really tackled some of those scriptures about homosexuality and really chewed on them to figure out what's going on here? How do I deal with this? What does this say? How would I communicate this? What does this say about God? If you haven't, then you've got to be really careful in your opinions. I've read plenty of books, lots of them, about this issue. But what I find myself often not doing is coming back to the Word and wondering, why does this seem to be less clear? Books want to tell me, here's what you should believe. (laughs) On both sides. But what does it say that the Scripture is written in ways that really make us pursue God and try to understand the whole picture of what He's doing? Are you listening or talking? If you're doing a lot of talking on this issue and not a lot of listening... Uh, you know, you might find that you're, uh, you're trying to you know, um, basically just talk about your beliefs so much that they become real for you. Your perception becomes real. You need to listen to people, particularly people who really love God who are same-sex attracted. Listen to their voice. Listen to what they think, how they present the issue, how they've decided on these issues. And listen to other people who've talked to people and thought about this. But you've got to do that. If you're only talking and you're not listening, ooh, not good. Befriending. You've got to befriend people. Um, and rather than just observing and judging and sitting back. <laughs> so many arguments, I've decided, in, in our minds are just like made-up people. We're just like making up groups and profiles and then saying, okay, well, this group shouldn't do it that way. And then when we actually go and meet a group of people, it's like, oh, maybe I simplified that a little too much. Um, I have a really wonderful example of mine, but I'm not allowed to share it because it's a secret about someone in this room. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait to, to ask you if I can share the secret and then maybe share it with you next week. Remind me to share with you the secret. Because okay? I'm pretty sure that they're going to let me share it. And it's going to be wonderful. And you would not want to miss it. Ever. Okay? Ever. It's a teaser for next time. So befriending or observing. Alright? Um, we're going to take communion. Sorry that I went so long. You know, just expect that. Until Leslie comes up and preaches, uh, I'm going to continue to go really long. Uh, so, yeah. That's what's going to happen. Wait till I talk about sexuality and power next week. Oh, man. It's going to get really crazy. Lord God, thank you so much for creating us male and female. Thank you for giving us the desire uh, to love someone erotically and love someone physically and emotionally. And I just thank you for that. That is such a blessed um, just thing that you've given us. The ability to really love people deeply, whether it's romantically or in friendship. And help us to just pursue love. Uh, help us to not be so afraid of our emotions, uh, but to be people who really keep our emotions in check with the spirit that you've given us. That we would really delight in things. That we would delight in each other. That we would uh, live life the way that you've um, created us to live. And uh, in enjoyment. um, And then allowing ourselves to be constantly challenged and changed by your spirit to really grow. Thank you so much for Jesus who came and taught us so much about the world using very material and common language. Farming and animals and um, just the things that you created. Help open our eyes to the enjoyment in front of us. Help us to not so narrowly define what's good and beautiful um, so as to miss the things that you're doing. Give us the ability to worship you in a variety of ways. uh, Not just in the way we feel most comfortable. We love you, Lord, and we pray um, just all of this in your son's name makes it possible. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.